0: I would ask you to please turn in your Bibles with me this morning to our text, which comes from the book of Revelation. So we'll be looking at chapter 19 and verses 6 to 10 this morning. Revelation chapter 19 and verses 6 to 10. Revelation chapter 19 verses 6 to 10. brothers and sisters, and hear with me the reading of God's Word. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy thus far as the reading of God's Word. Well, last week, brothers and sisters, we began looking at the opening Verses, the first five verses of of chapter 19 which depicted for us this celebration of the saints that is going on in heaven after the final return of Christ. And they cry out, Hallelujah! And we said that word Hallelujah means praise the Lord. And they cry out Hallelujah because of what Christ's final return has accomplished. Right, that final return of Christ accomplished a, a great and final victory. and right? a victory of Christ over his every enemy. A victory that, that showcased to the whole of creation that salvation and power and glory all belong to God and to God alone. Right, a, a victory that demonstrated that God is both true and just in His Word and in His deed. As it demonstrated that everything God said would occur actually occurs. They likewise sing hallelujah and they praise the Lord in heaven because He vindicated His church. Right? He avenged the blood of the saints that was shed by the ungodly inhabitants of Babylon. Right? There is such jubilation in heaven that we read that they throw themselves down before the throne in exaltation, right, praising and worshiping God. And how can they not? Right? How can they not after the long and exhausting battle that they have endured, but which God alone has carried them through? You know, brothers and sisters, the Christian life in Scripture is oftentimes... Likened to a race, isn't it? And if you've ever been in a in a race, right, especially a long distance one at that, what you know is that, right, as you're running, your mind oftentimes tells you what. It tells you you ought to give up. It tells you you ought to stop racing, right, throwing the the white flag. There's no use in, in continuing to push on ahead, right. In a in a race, likewise, what ends up happening? You, in a long distance race, you're probably running on Maybe treacherous terrain. right? Rough and, and bumpy ground. Right? As you're running likewise, there are many times in which your body, you think, is about to give out. That your, that your body might fail you. Right? But you keep on running. Right? You keep on pushing ahead. You keep on pressing forward. Why? You do so out of the anticipation of what awaits you. Right? When you cross that finish line. Which for them would be what? Joy. Happiness satisfaction, peace, rest, maybe their family there to embrace them once they have crossed the finish line. Right? For these many reasons, Scripture draws the comparison between a race and the Christian life. Now think about the saints who are living in the first century to whom this this book is initially written to. Right? They themselves are, are running a race. They are in the race called the Christian life. And the race is is a hard one for them, isn't it? Right? They are dealing with severe persecution and they are dealing with suffering. And their minds are, are asking them Do you think that you can get through this? Can you actually continue to, to push forward? As they continually to continue to, to live for Christ, being faithful witnesses, not compromising with the, with the society around them. They are going through high highs, right? They're experiencing peaks but very low lows. Right? They're experiencing many valleys as well. Perhaps the highs, the pinnacles of their week would be the gathering of the saints, where they're encouraged by God's word, where they're reminded of His promises. Perhaps some of the lows then are when they walk out of the meeting of the congregation back into the world, not knowing right, what might happen to them. Right? Suffering, imprisonment, death. But certainly one image must have been stuck in their minds, right, that kept them pushing forward Bearing witness to the name of Christ and obeying His commandments in a society that was against them. And what that was, was the anticipation of what awaited them when they too crossed the finish line. Right? That is the image that, that they had in their head that helped them to, to push forward along in the Christian life and to continue to, to run the race to the end, to the finish line. Right? Knowing that what awaited them was unending joy. Right? unending happiness, unending satisfaction, and peace, and rest. And at that time, they would be gathered with all of their brothers and sisters in Christ. At that time, they would be embraced, not by an earthly family, but by the arms of their Lord and Savior. At that time, when all of their enemies who are a hindrance to their fellowship with Christ on earth were vanquished, That all of God's people would in glory encircle the throne, fall down, worship the King and celebrate Christ. That is what kept them going. Right? That vision. Right? That glorious vision. And it's that same anticipation then that ought to keep you and I, right, running the race and pushing forward through the Christian life. When we grow tired or when we grow frustrated through our daily battle with sin, oftentimes finding ourselves failing in that battle and wondering, when will this battle ever end? Right? It is that glorious vision of being with the Lord in glory at the marriage supper of the Lamb that ought to keep us pushing forward. When we oftentimes see how weak we are and how it discourages us, how so often we, we cave into our fears, unwilling to stand up for Christ before others, afraid to lose out maybe on family relationships or friend relationships or, or to lose out on our jobs for speaking basic biblical truth to folks. I mean, everyone here who is a believer, you know that, that your life could be far more easier if you just shifted with the world. Or if you just gave in to the new morality of our society that is, that is put before you every day of your lives. But we must remember this, that when we grow fearful, Right when we start to feel ourselves becoming timid and weary and we start to notice that we are doubting, if we can push through, we have to remember, brothers and sisters, that we have a wedding to get ready for. Right? We have a, a wedding to get ready for. And just when a man and a woman enter into an, an engagement, right, what happens? They don't care about anyone else's opinion, do they? Right? They, they, they block out all the sound around them because they are enraptured in, in joy for that day. All they have time to do is to focus on that day and prepare for that day knowing that that day, their marriage, that day is going to be the, the, the best day, the greatest day of their life thus far. And so too, brothers and sisters, we as the, as the bride of Christ are to not let anyone else's opinions get in the way. We are to, to block out Right? The sound of the evil one and his temptations. He, we're not to allow him to, to steal the joy that we have in Christ. We're not to allow him to steal the joy of that day. Right? For right now, brothers and sisters, now is the time then to get ready. Right, the, the day is fast approaching. You have no time to lose. And so, we must get our affairs in order now. And so, when things get you down, right, when things get you down in this life, you are to think about the marriage feast of the Lamb. Right When you are, are down because of your own personal struggles, maybe struggles with aging family members, maybe struggles with wayward children, maybe struggles in your marriage or financial struggles or, or loneliness in your life. Right? When those things get you down, brothers and sisters, you ought to be thinking on this. Right? Thinking about the the marriage feast of the Lamb that awaits the people of God. For this will be the greatest day of your life as well. Now, in order to understand, though, this marriage feast imagery, we need to understand something about the the Jewish wedding celebration. We need to understand something about the Jewish wedding celebration if we are going to properly understand and interpret our text. Because remember what? Jesus is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He descended from the Jewish people. And so, we can't take... Western weddings in the 21st century and and apply our traditions and rituals right to the text. No, we need to look at what the the Jewish wedding celebration was and and see how that corresponds to the imagery of our text this day. And so this morning, we just have two points that we want to look at together. And our first point then that we'll we'll call is this, uh, the marriage feast symbolism. So point number one will be the marriage feast symbolism. Now we're introduced to our text in verse 6 with this great multitude right, that, are, that are crying out, Hallelujah! Now this is the, the third time in chapter 19 that, that the great multitude cry out, Hallelujah! to the Lord. Right? The first time was in verse 1 of chapter 19 where they cry out, Hallelujah! Recognizing that salvation and glory and power belong to God. In verse 3 they cry out, Hallelujah! Because of God's judgment of, of Babylon, right? That the smoke from that judgment goes up forever and ever. And now in verse 6, the, the great multitude, all of the redeemed, remember the, the 24 elders, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles, symbolic of the, of the church of all ages, right? All of God's people, Old Testament and New, shout with joy, Hallelujah, for the third time now. Although now they do it celebrating God's universal reign. His universal reign now uncontested, right, undeniable, acknowledged and recognized by all people as Jesus has put every enemy under His foot and has handed over the kingdom as mediator to His Father. In verse 7, then they continue saying, Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. So now to the Jewish marriage customs. Generally speaking, these are the elements that we would have in a Jewish uh, wedding celebration or the Jewish wedding customs. The first thing that you would have is a betrothal you 'd have a betrothal now when we think of betrothal, we oftentimes equate it with engagement don 't we right? The, the uh, Jewish betrothal we think of nowadays as you know a, a man and woman getting engaged, but what we need to see is that the betrothal is actually a much much stronger than that right? it's much more than a than a mere engagement uh, in the betrothal we i mean we're told in Matthew 1 if you remember that Mary is betrothed to Joseph and when Joseph finds out that Mary was pregnant with child what do we what are we told that he wanted to divorce Mary quietly but yet what had not yet happened he hadn't laid with his wife yet right they were just betrothed together there was a uh, and so it was much stronger than engagement right we need to see that it's much stronger than engagement now during the betrothal then the, the terms of the marriage are made between the parties and you also have have witnesses right you have witnesses of the terms and at this time what you really have is a legal marriage right during the betrothal you have a legal marriage and yet the the husband does not take his wife yet back to his home yet, right? There is a there is a period of time then between the betrothal and between the marriage feast, right? There is a, a period, an interval of time between those two things, which where the the groom then uh, pays the dowry, if he has not yet paid it. And the dowry could be paid in in a multitude of ways. The dowry could be paid with money, right? With currency. It also could be paid by services rendered. That's what we see in Genesis 29 with, with Jacob and Laban. If you remember, he tells Laban, I'll, I'll serve you for seven years for Rachel. Now after that interval period though, what you have is a, a procession then that generally follows. And now the, 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 the bride is all dressed and she's ready for her groom. And she's at her father's home. And now the, 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 the groom himself is dressed and ready. And now he proceeds to the father-in-law's home. Right, to go and to receive his wife. And he goes with his friends and he goes with his family and they and they sing and they rejoice at what is about to take place. And when he arrives, he, he takes his wife, receives her in his father-in-law's home and now brings her back and proceeds back to his own home. And once they get to his home, what ensues then is a great celebration. right? Festivities ensue. They have the, the marriage feast also in the evening. And this celebration can, can take days. It may even take a, up to a week, maybe two weeks. Right? That's how the Jewish wedding celebrations occurred. Now with this in mind then, everything that, that scripture tells us about the church's bride-like relationship to Christ ought to make more sense, doesn't it? As we think about, because our relationship as bride to Christ as groom follows this exact same pattern. If you think about it, it follows the same pattern. Paul says to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verse two, "For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ." Brothers and sisters, right now, you are betrothed to Christ, you have been united to Christ by faith. You are legally married to Christ. You, are, you have been joined with Christ. And the witness has been God Himself who has witnessed that that union. And the dowry likewise now has been paid. Jesus has paid the the dowry price for His bride. That's what we sing about in, in that hymn, The Church is One Foundation. In that first stanza. From heaven He came and sought her to be His holy bride. And with His own blood He bought her and for her life He died. Right? That's... He paid the dowry. He came to, to pay the dowry. right? In order that, that Christ might make the church His bride, He had to purchase her. He had to buy her with a dowry. And the dowry payment that He offered was His own life. Right? The dowry payment for the church was, was the blood of Christ. But those were the terms of the covenant of redemption, weren't they? Right? Those were the terms made between Father and Son from all of eternity. That Christ would come and die by shedding His blood to then receive the church as His bride. And so this is what He does. And so right now what we need to see is that we are in that interval period between the betrothal and between the marriage feast of the Lamb. We are right now living in that period between the first coming of Christ where He paid the dowry and the second coming of Christ where He brings us home to celebrate the marriage supper. That is where we are right now. This also, though, ought to help us to understand why this is called the marriage of the Lamb. Have you ever thought, why the marriage of the Lamb? Why not the marriage of the Son? Or why not the marriage of the Creator? Or why not the, the marriage of the King? Why the marriage of the Lamb? Brothers and sisters, it is the marriage of the Lamb because it is for this fact and this fact alone that Jesus came as Lamb, that you have been betrothed to Him and that you know Him and that you are in relationship with Him. What does John the Baptist say in the Gospel of John? Chapter 1, verse 29, as he first fixes his eyes on Christ, Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. Right, So this was the only way for Christ to gain His bride. It was by becoming Lamb. It was by becoming Lamb. right? To come as a living, breathing, perfect, spotless Lamb. And a sacrifice, an atoning sacrifice for sin. The only one that was ever going to be efficacious for the removal of the sins of His people that we might be made fit and ready to be joined in that sacred union with Christ. Apart from Christ, brothers and sisters, we are still dead in our trespasses and in our sins. Apart from Christ as, as Lamb, we have no hope in this world. It was as Lamb that Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 53.7 right, that Christ came to be led right, like a lamb to His slaughter on our behalf. Right, we only love Christ now as our bridegroom because He came to us as Lamb. We only love Christ as our Bridegroom because He came to us as Lamb. We only love Christ as Bridegroom because He showed us His love as Lamb in laying down His life for His people as a sacrifice for sin. I want us to also see this. Under the Old Covenant, when the Lamb which was sacrificed, which prefigured the Lamb of God who was going to come and be a sacrifice for sin. When that Lamb in the Old Covenant was sacrificed, was it sacrificed for the sin of every person in the world? For all nations? No. That Lamb was only offered on behalf of God's chosen people. The Israelites as His treasured possession under the Old Covenant. I remember just a few weeks ago we read in Deuteronomy 7, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God, the Lord has chosen you, right? God chose the Israelites to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. And this is no different than in the New Testament and under the New Covenant. Right, what does Jesus come saying to the apostles in John 15:16? You did not choose me, but I chose you. What does Jesus say in John chapter 10, verse 11? I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Right, we need to see, brothers and sisters, that it is only the bride of Christ that He has come to lay down His life for and to be an atoning sacrifice for sin. When the angel spoke to Joseph in Matthew 1, what did he say to Joseph then? He said, Don't fear. Take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You will call His name Jesus. Why? For He will save His people from their sins. You need to understand it was for this purpose that he came down as lamb, right? To redeem a bride that the father had given to him. That was his purpose. And this is something Jesus himself recognizes, right? For in John chapter 6 verse 38, he says this, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that He has given to me, and I will raise it up on the last day. So then, brothers and sisters, see that in the work of the Lamb, in the laying down His life, in the giving of it up upon the cross, that He did not die for the sins of every person. He laid down His life for His bride, for His people, for those who have been chosen by God before the foundation of the world, for His treasured possession. She is whom He loves. It is She who He came to die for. It is She who alone is His bride and who will celebrate with Him in glory for all of eternity. And not just for a couple days. Not just for a week or two, like in the Jewish wedding celebrations, but for all of eternity. For all of eternity. And so as you sit here today, the question we must ask ourselves is, do you have an invitation to that wedding feast? Do you have an invitation to the wedding feast? Because it is an invitation-only event. It is an invitation-only event. Look with me at verse 9, please. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those who are invited. And now you may be asking, some of you here today, well, how do we how do we get invited to this? This is something that we want to be a part of. Well, this leads us then to our second and our final point this morning, which is the marriage feast garments. The marriage feast garments. Look with me at verse 8 then, please. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Now, what I want us to see is that this verse interprets what has just come before it. Right In verse 7, let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Right, This verse 8 interprets that verse for us. Right? How did she make herself ready? Right? How does she make herself ready? It was, it was granted to her to clothe herself with these garments. That's how she was able to make herself ready. Because it was granted to her And this fact that it was not what she did that merited anything, but rather something that was freely given to her, is further supported by the Old Testament text that is alluded to here. If you would like to, please turn with me over to Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah chapter 61 helps us to kind of bring out the meaning of our text here as our Revelation text is, is alluding to, to Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61, and we'll, we'll begin in, in verse uh, 10. Isaiah 61, verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. For He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spout up before the nations. So we need to see here that the emphasis is on God's sovereign provision of His people. Right? To give to her the clothing that she will wear. It is He that clothes her. Right? He clothes her. In our Isaiah text, it's describing here the rejoicing of the saints that's gonna go on as God clothes her in her end time restoration. And the clothing here represents what? Salvation and righteousness which come not from their own works or from their own merits, but comes from God and God alone who provides it. He adorns His bride. Right? He causes her to wear what she wears. Right? He gives her the clothes that are of fine linen, bright and pure. Now what we need to likewise see is that these clothes though are in distinction... From the clothes that Babylon wore, aren't they? If you remember in Revelation chapter 18 verse 16, we're told of the garments which Babylon wore. We were told that she was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. What were all those things? Those were all things that they sought after. Those were all things they loved. Those were things they bought and sold and traded that they worked for and earned with their own merit and through the use of their own funds and their own efforts of their own hands. What we need to see, brothers and sisters, is that these garments that they wear are different from the garments which we wear. Right? The garments that we wear are garments that God provides that cannot be bought nor sold. Right? The garments that we wear cannot be earned or merited through the work of one's hands or the, or the sweat of one's brow. There's nothing you can do to attain them yourself by your own workings or efforts. Right? They are Christ's. He gives them to you. Which is why, even though the, the garments of this world will one day perish, right, the, the garments that the saints wear will be worn Forever. They will be worn forever. You want to know why? Because the garments that both groups wear are of different quality. Right? They are of different quality in nature. Right? The, the ones that, that Christ provides are eternal, are immortal, are imperishable, and incorruptible. incorruptible. So they will never right, fade away. They will never disappear. We will carry them upon us forever. And so let us see, brothers and sisters, that the wedding garments and the marriage supper of the Lamb is not something you can earn. Right? It's not about who can buckle their shoestraps and, and kind of pull themselves up by the seat of their pants. Right? It's not about who is able to, to clean themselves up enough for God. Right? It's not about who's a good person or who does good works or who can somehow make themselves lovable to God. As if God is going to look out in the world and go, there's a fit bride for my, for my son. Someone who's, who's, who's worthy of him. Who's lovable. That's never going to happen. That is not what, what God will say. In fact, what do we see with marriages today? With marriages today, and in particular, I think of, of men, what do they look for when they look for a spouse? Don't We as men generally look for someone we find attractive, right? You want to find your, your spouse attractive. Uh, there are some people maybe who, who who look for a spouse and someone that they've known for a long time, and seen the great character of that person, and seen that they have the same uh, morals and values, and so they say to themselves, "She will make a great bride." But but either case, no matter which one you 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 fall into, right? Both of them want to first see something lovable in the person before they would ever consider marrying them. This is the complete opposite of what God does for us. The complete opposite. And one of the greatest examples of this is in the book of Hosea. The book of Hosea. If you remember, in the book of Hosea, God tells Hosea to go and to marry a prostitute. And Hosea goes out, and he finds Gomer, who was a prostitute, and he marries her. In Hosea chapter one, verse two, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, "Go." take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Now when Gomer the prostitute is married to Hosea, what does she eventually end up doing? She flees him. She runs away from him. And she goes and commits more acts of adultery. right? Sleeping with other men. And what are we told then in Hosea chapter 3, verse 1 and 3. What what does Hosea do? And the Lord said to me, Go again. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for fifteen shekels of silver and a homer and a lethage of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell with Me as Mine for all My days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. Brothers and sisters, may we see today that we were once Gomer. That we were once Gomer. We did not love the Lord. In fact, we loved our sin. We loved our idols. And we ran away from God. We didn't run towards Christ. We chased everything but Christ. Isn't this what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3 verses 10 to 12? None is righteous, no not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. Think about that. Think about that. That Christ did not come as lamb to suffer and die for a worthy bride. He came to suffer and die as lamb for a worthless one. Think about that. He did not come and give His life for a beautiful, attractive bride in, in pure garments that was lovely to the eye. But He came and offers, offered Himself as a sacrifice for an ugly bride. One that is marred by sin, whose garments were filthy, disgusting, stained and marred and battered and torn. But like Hosea, Christ knew who His bride was. And like Hosea, Christ will not let His bride go. And just as Hosea chased after Gomer, so much so that he ran after her and paid for her and bought her back to be his own, So Christ was sent into the world seeking after His own people, laying down His own life, shedding His own blood as the purchase price to buy us back to Himself. It is Christ who who has washed us now in His blood. Made us us clean, as white as snow. It is He who has caused us then to, to put on righteousness. Any righteousness you have, He caused you to put on. He made you recipients of salvation, right so that now, brothers and sisters, we are able to make ourselves ready for the arrival of Christ because of what he has done, right so at the end of the day, he is the reason, and, and what we do is only the result of what he has already done and accomplished, right? any righteous works, any righteous deeds that we now do they 're all attributed back to God because they they spring forth as a as even Isaiah says there in Isaiah 61.11, they, they spring out of that fruit of righteousness already that is within us. And so they are all owing back to God. Right? All of those works. Right? We don't prepare ourselves. God prepares us. Right? He is the One who does the preparing inside of us for the return of the bridegroom. Right? Paul says in Titus 3.5 that He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, By the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Spirit whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. See, when we were regenerated, we were given a new heart, a new mind. We were given eyes to see, ears to hear. So that now as the Gospel is proclaimed and we have been granted the faith to believe, we exercise that that faith by trusting in Christ. right? By trusting in Him. And only then can we Exercise ourselves in those good works that God has ordained that we are zealous in. What does Paul say in Ephesians 2.8? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. That is both the salvation and the faith. Neither of your doing. They are both, Paul says, a gift of God. And as a result, what happens? Philippians 2.13 It is God now who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. As you sit here today, then see how much Christ loves you, His bride. Right? See how much Christ loves you as His bride. That He was not willing for anyone to outbid Him for you. So much so that He gave for you something more valuable than gold or silver. He gave for you His life. He laid down His life and He shed His blood for you. Likewise, then see how much the Father loves you. That He chose you to be in Christ before the foundation of the world. And He sent His only begotten Son to, to suffer and to die in your place so that you might have a relationship with Him. Think about how much the Spirit loves you that He now indwells you. And He leads you and He guides you in a world that is opposed to you. See how the Holy Spirit liberates you now to, to follow Christ even though this world tries to pull our hearts away from Him. See how the Holy Spirit stirs us up to prayer. How He shows us our need for daily repentance. How He motivates us to throw ourselves and cast ourselves before our Father's throne, bringing our supplications and our requests to Him, believing that He will answer. Does this news, brothers and sisters, not cause you to want to fall down and worship God just as John did? Does that news not cause you want to fall down and worship just as John did? Right. This is prophetic testimony we're told in our text today. Given by the Spirit to John. Which means these are true words. They can't fail. Right? Remember what John's condition is right now at the writing of this book. Right? John is, in, is imprisoned on the island of Patmos. He is without church. he's without friend. He is without family. He is without all of the comforts of life. Think about how glorious this message is to John as he hears it and why he throws himself down and worships. And yet, even as he worships, he teaches us something, doesn't he? That even though we are saints, that we are likewise still sinners at the same time. Right? As he throws himself down, we are told that he worships the angel. And what does the angel say to John? Don't worship me. I'm a servant just like you. Worship God. But what John does is something I think that all of us have a proclivity of doing, don't we? We all have a proclivity for worshiping men. We have a proclivity for putting pastors on pedestals. We all have teachers and pastors and ministers that we love and that we are thankful for and that we enjoy that bless us. But brothers and sisters, let us never forget that ministers that ambassadors, that heralds of God's Word, are just that and nothing more. Yes, it's okay to rejoice in the message they bring. It's even okay to thank God for the, the giftings and the capabilities that He blessed those men with. But remember that we are not to worship the messenger, because that is all that they are, a messenger. But Rather, we are to worship the source of the message, who is God. And this message that there is a, a marriage feast that awaits the people of God is a message that ought to cause us to worship and offer thanksgiving to God both this day and every day hereafter. And it should cause us, shouldn't it, to desire for that day to draw near. Right? Knowledge of this should cause us to desire for that that day to draw near. Think about in your own earthly marriages as the as the day that you were going to be married, the excitement built, didn't it? Right? You were getting more and more ready for it and you, you couldn't wait for it to happen. You wanted it to come. Can that be said of how you think about the marriage feast of the Lamb? I mean, think about the inhabitants of Babylon. When Babylon was away from them, what happened? They mourned over her. Right? They mourned over her because they wanted to be with her. Right? They loved her. They wanted to be near her. They loved all that she had given to them and afforded them. Is that how you feel about Christ? Right? Do you, do you long to be near him? Do you want him to come down now so that you might be with him forever in glory? The message of the Lamb then, brothers and sisters, provides to us all a reason to be happy even in a decaying world full of sin and full of abominations because we know that a day is coming in which Christ will return. And so it is that message that ought to get us through every struggle we face. It ought to enable us to endure the struggles of this world and run the race into the finish line knowing that Christ is going to return and when He does, He's going to bring us back home with Him to celebrate the marriage of the Lamb. The only question left to ask you here today is, brothers and sisters, will you be there? Right, will you be there? If you're not sure, then I exhort you to look to Christ. Right, look to Christ by faith because He will provide for you everything that you need. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. What a glorious vision that You have allowed Your people to behold this morning. We thank You for the encouragement that it was to the saints in the first century that got them through the struggle and torment that they suffered. And we thank You for that same true message that does not change today. For the believers all around the world that likewise helps to get us through the trials and the persecution and the torment that believers suffer today. Lord, we pray that You would cause us to long for this day with great anticipation that whenever we are dealing with the schemes of the devil, Lord, that You would cause us to uh, remember this, to think about this day and to think about how how glorious it shall be when we cross the finish line and as we are uh, in fellowship and in the worship and in the celebration of the Lamb forever. So, Father, we come before You asking all these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.